Hello and welcome to Season 2 of the Leading Through Uncertainty podcast. I'm Jude Jennison, founder of Leaders by Nature and host of this podcast, and I'm the author of the book Leading Through Uncertainty. In this series, I'll be delving into each of the chapters of the book and exploring what's the context of uncertainty, what are some of the challenges we face, and what are the habits and leadership behaviours that we need to adopt in order to navigate uncertainty more easily. This week, I'm reading Chapter 4, Stress and Overwhelm, and it starts with a story of when I was absolutely in stress and overwhelm in the early days of looking after horses. Lying face down in a muddy pool of six-inch deep water, my head was spinning and pounding. I heard the sound of someone hammering in the distance. Can you hear that banging? I asked my husband, Paul, who stood beside me. Is someone building a house? No, I can't hear anything, he said. I think I'm concussed, I replied. Don't be be silly, Paul said, as he held out his hand and helped me get to my feet. I'd asked Paul for help as I was struggling to get Callie, my horse, in and out of the field. The livery yard where she was kept had moved her to a new field where the gateway was made out of electric fence tape and the ground was waterlogged and deep in muddy water. The only way in and out of the field was to open the live electric gate in one hand, lead Callie through with the other hand, turn round and hook the gate closed again. When the electric tape touched the wet ground, it sparked with a loud crack, causing Callie to jump back in fear. When you know what you're doing, it's a relatively simple manoeuvre to execute, but I was new to this. Everything was uncertain. I had to navigate a pool of muddy water, two metres wide by two metres long, leading a horse with one hand and holding sparking electric tape in the other. The potential risk to our safety was high. In fact, Callie had already electrocuted us both only a a couple of weeks earlier by touching the electric fence when I was leading her. She had reared up and left me shaking in fear. I was doing my utmost not to repeat the experience. Callie had repeatedly refused to walk through the gate in the last two days and I'd been unable to get her out of the field. I had a workshop with clients the next day and I had no idea if I could get her out to work. I'd asked the yard owner if we could switch off the electrics temporarily to help me, and she had refused, saying the other horses might escape. Unsure where else to turn, I asked my husband to come and hold the gate open, so I could focus on leading Callie through the muddy water. I thought that without the distraction of holding a sparking electric fence gate in the other hand, I might have a bit more success. But it had not gone according to plan. My lack of horsemanship skills was evident and my leadership skills were lacking too. I had tried to persuade Callie to walk through the water but she was very reluctant. Finally, after much persuasion, she agreed to follow me and started to walk through. I thought we'd cracked it. At that moment, I slipped in the mud and I felt myself falling face down into a pool of brown murky water. In my unskilled way of leading a horse, I held on to Callie's lead rope, trying to regain my balance. In doing so, I nearly brought 600 kilograms of horse down on top of me. Callie headbutted me out of the way, causing me to drop the lead rope, then she jumped over me to avoid crushing me. I knew in that moment she'd done it to save me from serious injury. By contrast, the yard manager told me moments later that Callie was naughty, badly behaved, had no manners and that I should have slapped her for headbutting me. The yard manager had been watching at a distance with no offer of support. 
I had to admit defeat. I couldn't look after a horse without adequate support. I'm not superhuman. I'm not a machine that can be programmed to do things a particular way and neither is my horse. I was unskilled, leading through uncertainty with no support. I needed help fast. My life and my work depended on it. Asking for help. Uncertainty and not knowing create stress. They're part of the process of change, innovation and creativity. And as the levels of uncertainty in business and throughout the world are amplified, and as innovation and change generate more uncertainty, so too the level of stress in the workplace is increasing. There's no quick fix for this and it's not going to disappear. We cannot expect to navigate our current life and working environments without stress. Instead, we need to learn to find ways to support ourselves and each other to navigate challenging situations without reaching a point of burnout and overwhelm. I spent my life doing what seems ordinary to me and extraordinary to others. I work at a fast pace, achieve high volumes of output in a short space of time and do things that everyone tells me are not possible. I like a challenge. I'm determined and motivated. I persevere when others give up. But I have my limits. And in that moment that I was face down in mud with mild concussion, I had to admit I'd reached them. With little horse knowledge, a 600 kilogram powerful and opinionated horse on a yard where all I received was criticism, I knew I needed the right kind of support instead of the continuous blame and judgment for not doing things their way. It was time to move on and try a new approach with people who could help me in the way that I needed. Where are you struggling and need to ask for help? People often avoid asking for help out of fear of being seen as weak and unable to cope. In fact, asking for help is a sign of strength. It shows that you accept the boundaries of your capabilities and recognise that a team can be stronger when supporting each other. How can you create a culture where people feel safe to ask for help? When my clients work with horses, if someone is unable to move a horse, the rest of the team often feel uncomfortable watching. It's common for the team observing to want to offer support, but they often hold back for fear of not knowing whether an offer of help would be accepted, not knowing how to help, and not wanting to diminish or insult the person they can see struggling. Nobody wants to see other people struggle, but the person leading often doesn't consider asking for help because they'd label it as a failure. Not knowing is a concept that so many leaders struggle with. They desire certainty and answers, yet there's little certainty and no perfect answer in an economic environment requiring disruption, innovation and collaboration. People fear asking for help as much as they struggle to offer it because offering and asking for help creates further uncertainty in relationships. Uncertainty requires vulnerability, a willingness to work things through together, a leap of faith into the unknown in partnership. Most people find it easier to struggle on their own than to step into the vulnerability of relying on others for help. When teams have had a discussion about this, they learn to offer support instead of diving in and taking over. They learn to be willing to have the offer rejected as well as learn to ask for help from others more readily. By being open and transparent in the conversation around support and help, Teams can discover how to be in relationship in uncertainty. Asking for help can be transformative for both individuals and teams. Work-related stress. Leading through uncertainty requires a willingness to work as a team to explore answers together. Everyone wants to feel safe. 
In work situations where physical safety is paramount, for example manufacturing or construction industries, employees are used to talking about physical safety. It's a critical component of the job. In other industries that are office-based, people rarely talk about safety, and yet it's a key driver for how we operate. The rise of mental health issues and the shift to being able to talk about them is creating change in this area, but it's slow. Whenever you operate out of your comfort zone, it feels unsettling. This can range from feeling slightly uncomfortable trying something new to severe overwhelm due to a high workload, a bullying manager or a new job where you don't feel capable of meeting the objectives. Everyone's workload is ever-increasing and there's a limit to the capacity that the human brain can cope with. You are not a machine. Technology has limits and so does the human race. We're limited by our processing capabilities, both mental, physical and also emotional. We're reaching a crisis point of human capacity and something needs to shift to enable us to work more effectively. How do you prioritise between what is urgent and what is important when everything appears to be both? How do you set realistic targets and objectives and recognise that people are human and trying to do their best? How do you balance that with the needs of shareholders who want better results and more money? These are the fundamental questions that we need to be asking. And we need to set people realistic targets that are within their capabilities. And that starts with setting them for yourself. For almost two decades, the pressure people have been under has been increasing. And it's time to take a look at what is actually achievable. What targets are you driving towards that are unrealistic? What needs to happen? As more organisations downsize and the volume of workload increases, people are being put under greater pressure to deliver more with fewer resources. Deadlines are increasingly unrealistic and the incessant pressure escalates stress levels in the organisation. In parallel, technology is increasing the volume of information available, exacerbating the overwhelm. Many people are on conference calls all day with no breaks in between. While listening tentatively to the call, they're processing emails, instant messages, social media, as well as writing documents and so on. This multitasking is not only highly ineffective, it's damaging to our health. Many people are operating under severe pressure with a sense of, if I can just get to the end of the week, it'll all be okay. And of course it never is. This has huge implications on our long-term physical and emotional health. If people are trying to go faster and faster, caught up in the whirlwind of information, stopping only at the point of sheer exhaustion, they reach overwhelm and ultimately burnout. Overwhelm. In parallel to the increased workload, responsibilities outside of the workplace are growing too, such as childcare, parental care, the rise of dementia and an ageing population. All of these things affect employees. External stresses impact organisations and the two are inextricably linked because the people working in organisations are those same people who have those external pressures. And in the days of nine to five working where people switched off and turned their attention to their personal life, it was easier to juggle the external pressures. But now with a continued connection via technology, it's difficult to separate work and life. And as people feel continually under pressure 
and on autopilot to achieve everything they need to in their lives and work. They lack the time to look after themselves in the process. It requires time to plan healthy meals, cook and do regular exercise. And these are often aspects that fall to the bottom of the list of priorities, yet they have an impact on physical and emotional health. More parents work full-time and therefore the tension between work and life pressures is growing. Parents often use annual leave to cover childcare. And as life expectancy rises, more people are also taking responsibilities for parents. One in four people will have a mental health issue in the next 12 months, largely driven by unsustainable pressure and stress. The rapid pace of change is here to stay, and leadership has a critical role to play in how people are led and supported in this fast-changing and diverse world. In a 2017 HSE report, it was highlighted that, and I quote, work-related stress, depression or anxiety accounts for 40% of work-related ill health and 49% of working days lost in 2016-17. The reasons cited as causes of work-related stress are also consistent over time with workload, lack of managerial support and organisational change as the primary causative factors, unquote. These stats don't even include the physical health problems caused by stress. Everyone responds to pressure in different ways. For many, the fear of getting things wrong is real. The consequences are substantial too. Mispromotions, blame, criticism and potential redundancy. These are genuine fears that cause people to put themselves under huge pressure, accepting the challenge they've been set, whether they feel capable or not. Organisations with a culture of fear and bullying have poor leadership and high levels of stress, overwhelm and burnout. And I think that's really important that we pay attention to that. Sadly, there are many organisations that do have such a culture, whether they like to admit it or not. There's a tendency to think that workplaces are far better today than in the Victorian era of poor factory conditions. Of course, while physical environments are vastly improved, the emotional stress and strain people are put under repeatedly at work is an increasing and long-term societal problem which business must act upon. Where are the stress points in your business and your working day? Who needs your support? Yorkshire Water, a utility company in the UK, has recognised the importance of leadership and the impact it has on mental health in the organisation. The occupational health team work closely with the business to ensure that mental health training is available to all line managers, as well as exploring how leadership behaviours impact levels of stress in the workplace. Substantial support is available for those feeling stressed, with the ultimate aim of reducing work-related stress and improving mental health. And this is um, uh, a contribution from Susan G, who is occupational health for Yorkshire Water and this is what she writes. In 2008 the World Health Organization stated that entitlement to a safe working environment that places high regard on worker health and well-being is not an option it's a fundamental human right. In the same year one of the key themes in Dame Carol Black's groundbreaking report was to understand what underlies the apparent growth in mental health problems in the working age population and how this should be addressed. 
The report stated that it was vital for employers to understand the importance of the role they have in preventing ill health and how workplace interventions can significantly contribute to the wider public health agenda and in doing so not only reduce the burden on the NHS and the taxpayer but also support their own sustainability. Ten years on, in 2017, the Stevenson Farmer Review of Mental Health and Employers has taken employer responsibility for safeguarding the mental health of their employees to another level. The report prompted organisations to act in a moral and ethical way to demonstrate corporate social responsibility. It takes the bold approach of recommending that the government set out clear expectations of employers through legislation. Work intensification, a culture of long hours, the British worker has the longest working week in Europe, technology and the pace of change in the workplace leave employees with little capacity to cope with the mounting pressures in their lives outside of work. Employees come to work with a variety of life pressures already weighing on them heavily. It would be a triumph over reality for employers to expect them simply to leave their problems at the door. But in 21st century Britain, this expectation is not sustainable. At Yorkshire Water, we've taken some significant steps to protect the mental health of our employees. We've made it mandatory for all managers to undertake the two-day mental health first aid course. I know many companies are now following suit on that. And Yorkshire Water have made it mandatory for every team to do a stress risk assessment so that every employee has a voice. Employees who report being stressed at work are referred to occupational health on day one of doing so. We've formed a mental health support group so that employees can share their experiences and support each other. And we have a proactive approach to rehabilitating employees back to work. And Earth, probably. We also offer referral to an independent consultant psychiatrist and referral to a variety of talking therapies. As a result, we've seen increased referrals to occupational health and our employee survey survey indicates that our employees feel supported and valued. And that's that's been written by Susan G as a as a contribution into the book. And I you know, I think Yorkshire Water would probably be, you know, one of the first to say they haven't got everything perfect because I don't think there's a single organization on the planet that has. But I think what is crucial is that they are taking the role of leadership related to stress very, very seriously. And that's, you know, that was what was recommended by Stevenson Farmer report. And I think it's something that organisations increasingly are going to need to pay attention to, that um, it's no longer just about implementing well-being practices. We've actually got to look at the quality of our leadership because that can determine the level of pressure and stress that people are under. Work, workload, pressure, stress and overwhelm are different for everyone and it's unreasonable to expect everyone to cope with the same workload, just as some people are more capable of doing one job than another. Putting people under severe stress for pro- prolonged periods leads to burnout. Once someone has experienced burnout in the workplace, it's very difficult to bring them back to the same job and expect them to perform. People are more likely to walk away than face it head on. We need more dialogue around what is an acceptable level of pressure and a willingness to ease an unrealistic workload. 
Understanding individuals' capabilities related to stress and pressure is crucial to maximising productivity and minimising stress. It's not acceptable to continually put employees under substantial long-term pressure without accepting the responsibility for their mental health in the process. Resilience. With the increasing pace and prevalent stress, there's a need to support yourself as well as your team and organisation. It's important to recognise that you have limits and those limits vary for everyone. What's your limit and how do you know when you've reached it? Unrealistic targets and expectations are a major cause of stress and overwhelm. The increased uncertainty raises stress levels through the fear of the unknown and fear of failure. Uncertainty is now a key part of everyday working life and we need to equip managers and leaders to manage their fear and reduce their stress. If you are conscious of when you're in a high period of stress, it's important to counteract this with time out and quieter periods. Raising awareness of the level of stress is essential to prevent it spiralling out of control. Many organisations provide training in resilience and mindfulness, and this can be enormously helpful in retraining your thought processes to reduce stress and prevent overwhelm. However, some organisations use resilience as an excuse to put people under even more pressure, the implication being that the fault lies with the employee's response to pressure if they seem unable to cope. Wellbeing intervention should not be the antidote to excessive pressure, unrealistic workload and poor leadership. Wellbeing of a team is the responsibility of every leader in the organisation. Where are you putting people under pressure and how does that contribute to stress? Consideration must be given to what is a reasonable and acceptable amount of pressure And this will vary on on an individual basis, so we need to really pay attention to how people feel. If we continue to demand more than people are able to deliver on a long-term basis, overwhelm, stress and burnout will continue their upward trend. People can and do bounce back once they reach overwhelm, but it can take a long time for people to return to work when they've been absent with stress. The tendency to continually push through causes long-term damage on both a physical and a mental level. Learning where your limits are and keeping an open dialogue with your team is essential to understand the early warning signs of stress. Stress is not just a mental health issue. The long-term health implications are significant, with many physical illnesses caused by stress. Well-being of the workforce is a responsibility of the organisation. And well-being is a leadership issue. And that concludes the chapter on stress and overwhelm. And I just want to cover some, talk about some of the key points in that. I think when we look at stress, there there are two responsibilities that we we have. We have a responsibility to ourselves in, in leading our own lives to look at how do I minimise my own stress? How do I live and work in a way that is empowering to me as an individual, as a leader, in a way that has me come alive, that has me feel great about my life and my work? And I think that's really important because there are too many people in jobs where they feel significantly under pressure and they're afraid to to say no, they're afraid to say this job doesn't work for me, to find another job. Um, As individuals, we have a responsibility to manage our own stress levels and 
And only we can do that. But on top of that, when we're leading organisations and we're leading teams, we have a responsibility at that level as well. If as a leader, I put my team under significant stress, they will underperform. So it actually makes good business sense to make sure that I've got a team who are as least stressed as possible. And I and I know how difficult that is because we're working in really fast-paced, challenging environments with lots of change. But we've got to look at it. We've got to start thinking about how do I make life and work easier for my team, for the organisation and for myself. So I'd love to hear your thoughts. What what are you doing to minimise your stress? What are you doing to minimise the stress of people in your team and in your organisation? Please get in touch. Let me know your thoughts. I'd love to hear more about this and let's let's create a dialogue around this. Mental health is not just about acute mental health when when we've hit crisis point. We all have mental health, either good mental health or poor mental health in the same way as we all have physical health. Uh, we need to start creating a dialogue around it and and look at how do we look after ourselves and each other so that um, society benefits, business benefits, and everyone in the organisation benefits. That's it this week. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast and you'd like to read the full chapter, you can download a copy of it from my website at judegenison.com forward slash podcasts. Or if you'd like to hear real live stories of leaders who've led through uncertainty and how they've overcome their challenges, check out season one of this podcast, episodes one to 35 where I interview leaders from a variety of organisations on their experiences. There are some truly inspirational stories from leaders there. I'm Jude Jennison, host of the Leading Through Uncertainty podcast and founder of Leaders by Nature. Keep leading and I'll come back soon with the next chapter of my book, Leading Through Uncertainty.